This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Hello. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It's October, which means it is officially Halloween. Like the whole month. Halloween is not just a day, it is a season. It's a lifestyle, baby. Which is why we are going to do our Halloween special a little bit early this year. This episode is a combination of personal ghost stories sent in by listeners, as well as some ghost stories I've collected from around the mitten. Some of the stories have been edited for length and continuity, but not a whole lot, just just a little bit here and there. All right, who's ready for some dead time stories? Speaking of, by the way, I have some pretty big news, but I'm going to save that for the end of the show. Let's get started. This first story here is from my buddy Josh Strickland. If you are in the Lansing area, you likely remember him from The Morning Show on 97.5 Now FM, which he did for many, many years. For a few years, the station did on-air paranormal investigations around Halloween. They did My Old Haunted House one year, if you guys remember. I think I've talked about that before, back in 2012. And that's actually how I met a lot of the paranormal peeps that I still work with today. This story, Josh sent me about something that happened on another investigation. I can't remember if it was the year before my investigation or the year after, but I vividly remember this story because it was so creepy. He wrote, This is a story from one of our paranormal investigations at 97.5 Now FM. If I remember correctly, we were in Mason. He later emailed me and said it might have been the time they were in Williamston, so he wasn't entirely sure. It was a long time ago. Um, But somewhere, somewhere thereabouts. It was an 1800s farmhouse that sat along the river. Very cool place, tons of history on the property, which included lands on both sides of the river. Lands? Land. He wrote land. I said lands. Sorry, Josh. Maria Shaw, an astrologer and medium, was the first from our team to arrive. She explored the house and then walked the property. She ended up spending a lot more time outside, later telling the owner that she felt the presence of a young girl, that she believed there was an accident in the river and maybe it involved a little girl, like maybe a little girl had drowned. The property owner seemed perplexed. She had no knowledge of anything like this happening. Ahead of our visit, the property owner had sent us information about the strange and haunted happenings that her family had experienced. She never said anything about a little girl or anything related to the river, really. All of the occurrences that her family had experienced were inside the house. But Maria persisted that there was something she was picking up on outside. The presence of a little girl, something about the river. I think the investigation was just about to get started at this point. We all went back outside. Maria wanted to spend some more time walking the property. Still, the owner was baffled at what Maria could be sensing. I began to feel like the homeowner might be getting annoyed that we weren't focusing on what her family had been experiencing, when all of a sudden, as we were speaking, the homeowner's face went pale. Oh my God, she said. She then told us that she kayaks the river frequently, and just on the river from her house is a bridge. For years, year after year, she has witnessed a couple on the bridge dropping flowers into the water. Eventually, she realized that this was happening on the same day every year, and then she realized that each year, the couple tossed in one more flower into the river than they had tossed in the year before. All at once, as she told us this, this intense extra sense... I can't talk. I'm sorry, Josh. I'm messing up your story. Let's try that again. All at once, as she told us this, this intense extrasensory wave came over us. I was chilled. My hair stood on end. I think the wind suddenly picked up. Even Maria was taken aback. It was the single most powerful experience for me at one of these events. None of us saw it coming. We didn't do any in-depth research to discover if there is any record of a drowning in the river or connected to that property. 
but just the fact that Maria was so insistent that she was picking up on something, and then for the owner to suddenly connect the dots, it was pretty fantastic. There were a number of other curious events that took place that night inside the house. There might be some real activity there, but it may not be who they suspected that it might have been. That is crazy. Crazy when things like that happen. And again, I remember that because it was just this shocking story and you could tell when Josh told it after it happened, he was still shocked. It was it was really something. So thank you, Josh, for sharing that. I had forgotten about it, but I remember it now. This actually reminds me a little bit of the legend of Minnie Quay. Minnie Quay was a young girl, a real girl, by the way, who took her own life in 1876 under circumstances that remain up for debate to this day. Minnie was the eldest daughter of a prominent lumberer in Forrester, Michigan. (laughs) A lumberer in Forrester? Go figure. Uh, Forrester is a teeny tiny town on the outer edge of the Thumb along Lake Huron. Because of its location, Forrester was... Oh, my. Okay. (laughs) I wrote Forrester was a port town, but it's late at night and I am tired. And while I was reading it, I really thought it said Forrester was a porn town. (laughs) I've never been there. So if any of you are familiar with Forrester, maybe you can let us know if it's a porn town. But for the purpose of this story, it is a port town, a place for cargo ships to stop along their travels. So sailors were always coming and going and they had a pretty bad reputation around town. They drank too much, partied too much, and took advantage of the local gals. While rumor had it that 15-year-old Minnie Quay became involved with one of these ruffians and was possibly even unpure. Her parents were furious. Their reputation had been sullied, their daughter had been sullied, And so they forbade Minnie from seeing her sailor and prevented her from bidding him farewell when his ship set sail. Months later, word came that the ship Minnie's beloved was on had been lost at sea, along with its entire crew. A very distraught Minnie donned a wedding dress, took a walk through town in the dress, waving to her neighbors, then jumped off the end of the pier into the icy waters of Lake Huron to be with her love forevermore. Even though Minnie's little brother saw her jump and ran for help immediately, it took them over an hour to find her body. It's now said that her ghostly figure, still dressed in white, can be seen walking the streets of Forrester in the early morning hours, and that she lurks near the pier. It's even been alleged that if a young woman visits the pier, Minnie makes her presence known and begins whispering to the girl, trying to convince her to jump into the depths of Lake Huron and join her for all of eternity. Now, this Minnie Quay legend is real. Girlfriend has her own Wikipedia page. There was a play written about her. A historical fiction book has been published about her. People really believe this one, and there have been many, many, many mini Quay sightings over the past 150 years. But I looked into it, found some old newspapers, and the whole story is not necessarily as romantic as it is made out to be. As previously stated, Minnie was a real person. She was the daughter of a lumberer in Forrester, and she did take her own life on April 27, 1876, by jumping off the pier into Lake Huron. She was wearing a white dress at the time, but whether or not it was actually a wedding dress is unclear. She might have just liked white. Neighbors did report that Minnie waved to them as she walked by that day on her way to the dock. But did she really take her own life because of a sailor? That's the part that's unknown. This particular sailor was never identified, nor was the ship of his that supposedly went down. But there was major gossip going around town about Minnie, that she'd lost her virtue to a sailor more than five years her senior. There were even rumors that she was pregnant. Newspapers at the time reported that it was this character assassination that led Minnie to take her own life. And the saddest, most fucked up part? After she died, her parents had the doctor examine her to determine if her virtue was still intact and whether or not she was pregnant. She was not pregnant, and she died a virgin. 
So if I was Minnie Quay, I would haunt the shit out of that town forever and ever and ever. Okay, time for some more listener stories. Here's one that is creepy as hell, sent in by listener Amy Levert. In 2007, my son was around four years old. We lived on Coolidge Road in Holt, which, those of you not local, Holt is just south of Lansing. It's probably our very nearest little suburb. We experienced lots of paranormal activity at that house, but it never felt bad or evil. My son would often talk about children he saw in the house. He was so young, he didn't understand that they weren't actually there. This gives me goosebumps just remembering back to this. One time that stands out to me the most was when I was doing dishes and my son was in the living room and he asked me what those little girls were doing playing under the kitchen table. He brought up children playing in our house on many occasions. It spooked me out, but I played it off as being his imagination and I didn't make a big deal out of it. One morning I went into the kitchen and there were little footprints on the kitchen counter. They were made out of dried grape juice that someone spilled a bit of on the counter. One was a perfectly formed little footprint with all the toes even. It was really strange and spooky. Cell phones were not popular at the time, and I wish I could go back and take a picture now. My son would often say that he saw me in his room at night, and I would tell him I was probably just checking on him. He told me that I would walk through his walls and he got upset with me when I wouldn't show him my trick of walking through the walls. <laughs> That's so fucking creepy. It was obviously not me walking through the walls at night, but to a young child, of course he would assume it was his mother, even though he said I was in a white dress. Hey, maybe it was Minnie Quay. Maybe she came to visit. Uh, He also talked of noises coming through his window. He would say it was the stars making noise. And to this day, he still remembers what it sounded like. At the same house, I would sometimes wake up to the smell of smoke and a clicking noise. This happened on many occasions, and I started getting worried that there was some sort of electrical problem. Why would I be smelling smoke and also hearing a clicking noise at the same time? It was always at 3 a.m., of course. I made my husband go into the attic and make sure there were no electrical issues. That happened several times over the course of a couple weeks, and I never did figure out what it was. I was told that the house was supposedly built on a Native American burial ground, but I don't know if that's true. We have since moved back to Midland, and we have not experienced anything like that since. Amy, that's fucking creepy. And it reminds me so much of my old house. The footprints, the, well, in my case, it wasn't a smell of smoke. It was my actual smoke detectors going off at night over and over and over in the middle of the night. But this story just feels so similar, so familiar to me. Crazy. Yikes. Okay, so this next story is from Renee about one of the stories covered early on in the podcast, the Michigan School for the Blind. More specifically, the Abigail. Renee wrote, You did the story on the school for the blind being haunted. I lived in a house that backed up to the school's property for many years, and yes, my house was haunted. There were loud bangs upstairs with no one up there, clocks that had batteries removed chimed on the hour randomly, shadows crossing from the kitchen to the stairs, Once, a cloud of smoke rolled from the floor to the ceiling, the full length of the wall. The smoke was so thick, I had thought the house was on fire. That's really interesting because there actually was a fire on the property that burned down one of the buildings and may or may not have caused some fatalities. Every night, something would walk into my bedroom. I would hear clear-as-day footsteps. It would sit on the side of the bed, then walk out again. Even with all of this, I was never scared. I was not alone when these things happened, and it made non-believers believe. I felt the safest in that house, protected. I'm not sure if it's related to the Abigail or not, but my home was built in the 1890s, so it's been there for a long time. This activity still happens today. My daughter now lives there with her husband, who was a non-believer. 
<laughs> Crazy. So about a week after I got this first email from Renee, she sent a second one. Uh, it said that her son, who was redoing the bathroom in the house, found an old piece of paper in one of the walls. It was pretty torn up and it was hard to make out, but she sent me pictures of it. And what you could see was that it was actually a time card for an employee at the School for the Blind from April of 1929. So cool. Like, that's the dream, isn't it? You live in an old house, you want to find old shit. I live in a house that's 100 years old now, and it's got a lot of creepy, spooky history. I'm certain of it because it was the parish for the church next door, and we all know some freaky shit goes on at church. So I would love to find some weird things in my house, but it has not happened yet. So just a little recap on the School for the Blind. Uh, Danny talked about this one many moons ago on the podcast, and I wrote about it in Haunted Lansing as well. We were never able to make the school a stop on the Demented Mitten Tours because it wasn't the safest place to visit at night, and now it's private property. Although, I did get to go inside the Abigail last year just as they were starting renovations to turn it into a senior center. I don't really know if I felt like it was haunted. It was definitely creepy, but I didn't get that kind of sick feeling that I often get when I visit a really active location. I also wasn't really in there very long either, though, so who can really say? The first establishment built on the property was the Michigan Female College, which was founded in 1858 by Abigail Rogers, hence the name The Abigail, way back when women weren't allowed to go to college. Cool times. When Abigail died in 1869, the college foundered and closed that same year. The building was then sold to the Independent Order of the Odd Fellows, or the IOOF. Eoof, as I like to call it. <laughs> Even after researching it a ton, I still don't really have a clear understanding of what Eoof does, but it all feels a little bit secret society-ish to me. And they definitely had some weird rituals involving human skeletons, so make of that what you will. The Michigan School for the Blind purchased the property from the Oddfellows, and the school opened in 1890, so the same year that Renee's house was built, with 35 students enrolled in grades K-12. through At its peak, the school housed over 300 visually impaired students. It wasn't a school in the traditional sense, like kids didn't go in the morning and come home in the afternoon. It was more like a boarding school. These kids lived there full-time during the school year. The Michigan School for the Blind was open until 1995, so for over 100 years. And it had its ups. Uh, Stevie Wonder was a student. The school won a wrestling state championship one year. But there were also the downs. There were poor living conditions, suspicious fires, creepy underground tunnels, it was rumored that the school was haunted before the building came abandoned, but once the lights went out, forget about it. People claimed to hear moaning coming from underground, which is said to be caused by restless spirits roaming the tunnels. Uh, people have seen shadows pass by broken windows, which that might actually just have a very real-world explanation as the buildings on the school grounds, when they were still vacant, they were plagued with squatters. My favorite, and also my least favorite story about the Abigail, is about the time that a team of caretakers did a sweep of the building to check for squatters, and in the janitor's closet near the old gymnasium, on a pegboard wall of hooks that was once used for cleaning tools, were dead animals gutted and skinned, squirrels, rabbits, probably rats. Why? Why? Anyway, yeah, so that's the School for the Blind in a nutshell. If you want to learn more, go back and listen to episode 20 of So Dead, or you can also read about it in Haunted Lansing. Okay, back to our listener stories. Here are a couple of short but creepy ones. This one comes from my friend Bobby, who is a paranormal investigator. She wrote, As a child, I played every day with three children who were unseen by others. They were Susie, Chrissy, and Leo, 
and I played tea party with them under our forsythia bush every chance I had. My sister would get mad and leave because she couldn't see them and was jealous that we were having conversations that she couldn't hear. I determined from their attire that they had lived somewhere between 1860 and 1890. My impression was, and I still believe, that they lived on our property when it was farmland and perished in a house fire. I'm still trying to validate this. To this day, my sister tells people that her childhood friends were my imaginary friends. And this one is from listener Delena. I love the podcast and wanted to share my ghost story with you. So we bought our house almost two years ago, knowing that the gentleman who owned it previously passed away in the home. Nothing scandalous, just old age. My husband works third shift, so it's just me and the dogs alone at night. I never noticed anything off, maybe a strange noise here or there, but that's it. One night, I woke up from a dead sleep to see a man's figure at the end of my bed. Nightmare! I immediately screamed and closed my eyes, and when I opened them, it was gone. A few months later, it happened again. He never seemed to do other ghostly things, but he apparently comes to watch over me and the house while I sleep. Fucking creepy. Speaking of old people, here are some grandparent stories for you. This one is from my friend Autumn. It says, When I was a kid, my grandpa told me all sorts of stories. They may not be true, but they're good stories nonetheless. Grandpas love to talk shit, don't they? My grandpa was always telling me the most ridiculous stories, like he got joy from tricking me. Honey. Anyway. My grandparents built their house themselves in the late 50s, early 60s on the edge of the woods. When I was a kid, they told me never to go into the woods because the man with the crooked stick would get me. They said that he was missing a leg from the war and he used a crooked stick for his leg. So we were petrified to go into the woods when we were kids. That's smart, really, because you get you got a bunch of grandkids coming over. You don't want to have to watch them every second. You don't want them going into the woods and getting lost or getting hurt or getting poison ivy. So you just tell them there's a fucking creep living in the woods, right? So that they won't go in there. That is a smart tactic right there. Good job, Grandma and Grandpa. Well, one day we were playing along the edge of the woods, just being kids, and out walks a man with a crooked walking stick and an amputated leg. We never ran so fast in our lives. Apparently, my grandfather knew that the man lived out there and just made the story up to scare us. Grandpa, you asshole. I have so many questions, though. Like, did the man live in the woods? Because that's a little sketch, and maybe... Grandpa really did want you to be careful and stay away from him as a real man, not as like a ghost, but as a real person. Or was he just like the neighbor living his life and he got turned into a roadside attraction to keep the kids out of the woods? Who knows? Autumn, do you know? Maybe you can tell us. She went on. Another story we often heard growing up was this one. My grandpa said that one night when my grandma was asleep, he was sitting in the kitchen and he thought he heard something on the roof and thought he heard <laughs> thought he heard bagpipes. <laughs> that is really random. He looked at the clock and it was 12.01 a.m. He walked around the house to see if the TV was on or a radio, nothing. So he goes outside and finds a ghost of an Irishman playing bagpipes on the roof. <laughs> First of all, aren't bagpipes Scottish or are they Irish or can they be both? I don't know. But it, yeah, okay. So bagpipe playing guy in a kilt on the roof. I think that's Scottish. I'm pretty sure. Um, he ran back inside to wake my grandma and once she woke up, the noise stopped. He told us that he thought maybe they built the house on an old Native American burial ground of some sort. Why Why would he be... <laughs> Your grandpa was just fucking with you, Autumn. Why would there be an Irish man playing bagpipes on the roof on a Native American burial ground? <laughs> That's actually hilarious. Your grandpa's amazing. Um... 
Now, I have no idea if any of this was a true story. It wasn't. Or one he made up. It was. But let me tell you, as a kid, this scared the crap out of me. My grandparents have both passed away, but these stories are some of my best memories. As they should be, because that's fucking awesome. Thank you for sharing. Now here is a grandparent story about some of my own ancestors. My cousin Melissa sent me this one. It says, We were in a cemetery in Indiana. I had used Find a Grave to make a list of all of my ancestors buried there. And she's my cousin, so these were also my ancestors. Okay, thank you. Uh, I was walking around taking pictures and checking off names. Rox, her younger sister, so also my cousin, was wandering around using a ghost app on her phone. I said, that's the last one, I'm done, and immediately Roxanne said, shit. A big red dot just popped up over there on her ghost app. So these apps have a bunch of different features. One of them is they're supposed to detect otherworldly presences, and when they detect one, a red dot appears on your screen. So red dot appears on her screen. Uh, They walk over to the direction that the red dot is located on the screen, and they walk up to a grave that they hadn't been by yet, and bam, another relative that they had not known was buried there. Apparently, these relatives did not want them to miss them. Okay, so this is, I made that one confusing. I went from third person to first person. We're going to go back to third person now. This is what Melissa wrote. Uh, Another time, my mom and I were walking around the cemetery in Fife Lake, just wandering around with the ghost app. As we wandered back over to where her grandparents are buried, the word familiar popped up. Like they recognized mom, their granddaughter. She was pretty touched by that. I had never met them since they passed before I was born, but they recognized her. Hmm, that's so sweet. Moral of that story is that my family, both on this side of the veil and the other, enjoy the ghost app. Go figure. All right, one more grandparent story. This one is from listener Kim Crapo. After my grandpa, who I affectionately referred to as Papa, passed away in 1983, I went to live with my mom. You see, mom was a teenage mother and she couldn't, well, she just couldn't. Luckily for me, my grandparents could. My papa doted on me as long as I can remember. After long hours at work, he'd pull up a chair, remove his uniform shirt so he was wearing a plain white tee, as always, and help me with my homework for as long as it took. When he left for work in the morning, he always left me little notes to read when I woke up. They'd say things like, be a good girl, or you are my sunshine. Mm, That's so sweet. Sometimes he would leave me riddles to solve. On his dresser was a cup where a mysterious little, well, I really don't know who he was, but Papa called him Yehudi, would leave me little surprises. Sometimes coins, sometimes candy, just little things to let me know he was thinking of me. Yehudi, that is. Wink, wink. She wrote wink, wink. I didn't make, that was not an ad lib. (laughs) It wasn't until many years later, while reminiscing of those little surprises, that I googled Yehudi. Here's what I found. It was a song from 1940 that went like this. The man who wasn't there said he heard him on the air. No one seems to know from where, but who's Yehudi? But I digress. Digress? No, it's digress. She wrote digress. I said it wrong, as usual. But I digress. So, I moved in with my mother after Papa's death in 1983 when I was 12. My mother had married and had a son, my half-brother Eric. Eric was quite a handful. Papa called him Eric the Red, and as always, there's a lesson there. But the historical part isn't the point of this story. I still want to know it, though. Uh, That year, I had fallen quite ill with pneumonia. My mother had taken me to the doctor, and I was receiving appropriate meds, but was completely exhausted. One day, my mom decided to take my brother down to the neighbor's house to visit for a while. I was left to sleep in my room in peace and quiet. Quiet, other than the litter of black Labrador puppies in the living room. 
What happened next is probably one of the most amazing things of my entire life. Not probably. It certainly was. I was in that medicated, wonderful, dreamy sleep alone in my room when I heard my papa's voice calling, Little One, as that was his pet name for me. I opened my eyes to see his signature plain white tea standing over me and calling, Little One. As I came to, the reason for his waking me became horribly apparent. Ugh, I have chills right now, you guys. The house was filled with smoke, choking smoke. My tired, medicated body apparently failed to react prior to the miraculous interruption. Little one, once more to be sure, but this time it was more dreamlike and fading. I got up, went to the litter of puppies, and saved every one of them before my mother saw the smoke from the neighbor's house. When the fire department arrived, they found the source of the smoke. Eric had been playing with a lighter under his bed, and the mattress was on fire. On the inside. Love knows no boundaries. Not space or time. That is so beautiful. So beautiful. I'm not even, like, exaggerating. I literally had chills. My whole body had goosebumps. Oh, God. Okay. And, you know, me being me, you know I had to look into the Yehudi thing. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Um, according to our good friend Wikipedia, Yehudi was actually famed violinist Yehudi Menuhin. Menuhin? I don't know. He was a guest on Bob Hope's radio show a long fucking time ago. And throughout the episode, Hope's sidekick kept saying, Who's Yehudi? The audience thought it was so funny because people back then found a lot more humorous than we do now. I I don't personally get it, but okay. They thought it was funny, so he kept saying it, even long after Yehudi was a guest on the show, turning what was really just someone's name into kind of a slang reference for a mysteriously absent person. The term became so popular that the U.S. Navy chose the name Project Yehudi for an early version of stealth technology, and a song called Who's Yehudi was written in 1940 and later covered by Cab Calloway. Yehudi is also Hebrew for Jew, but I think that the first explanation makes a little bit more sense in this situation. So that's the one we're going to go with. Okay, just a couple more. This one comes from my buddy Mandy, who is a fan of the podcast. And this is another tugger on the heartstrings. She wrote... All right, so, private ghost story and pretty personal to me and my mom. My dad was diagnosed with brain cancer when I was 13, 14. Long story short, he ended up having surgery that didn't go as planned, and we decided to not go further with cancer treatment, and he went into hospice care. He was in hospice for about a month before he passed. The staff was great and made sure we had information on Ellie's place and other therapy providers. One nurse in particular told us about how pennies are angels saying hello. I've heard that before. My dad died on April 14th at 1.13 p.m. While funeral planning the next day, we stopped to pick up pizza for the family. I opened the car door and on the ground was 14 pennies. But wait, it gets weirder. There were 13 American and one Canadian. So, 14 pennies and he died on the 14th. One Canadian and 13 American, he died at 1.13. Of course, we picked them all up and then cried. More strange stuff happened after my dad died. Both my mom and I can smell roses when none are in the room, and that was his favorite scent. I find random pennies on bad days. Stuff randomly moves to different spots in the house. My dad loved pranks, just to name a few. Oh, that is so sweet. So I definitely plan to fuck with my family from the beyond. And in sweet little ways and funny little ways, I don't want to scare them, but I definitely plan to make sure they know I'm still watching, whether they like it or not. Okay, here comes our last listener story, and then I've got one for you myself. This one is from Nicole Beauchamp paranormal investigator and author of Haunted Bay City, Michigan, which was just released last month. 
I didn't like steal this from her book or anything. She sent this to me for the podcast. FYI. This story takes place in Charlotte, home of our Festival of Oddities and one of my favorite haunted locales here in Michigan, the Courthouse Square Museum. But this is not about that place. This is about a different haunted place in Charlotte, a building that was once home of the restaurant, the Stockyard Barbecue. Here's what Nicole wrote. I remember being contacted by the owner of the Stockyard Barbecue back in June of 2014. He tried desperately to contact our paranormal team countless times, always leaving a voicemail detailing the insane amount of activity he had experienced over the course of 20 years as the building's owner. His staff had encountered such strange phenomena that when I inquired with several of them if they'd like to join in on the investigation, they refused, many of them with eyes full of fear. Reports included finding items in strange locations from where they were originally placed, appliances being used without anyone in sight, broken dishes and messes appearing out of nowhere, and poltergeist-like activity with furniture moving and loud machinery being triggered when people were alone in the building. The most feared experience, and most popular, was the sighting of a full-bodied apparition. Depending on who you asked, it seemed to take on different forms, from a sweet elderly lady to a large domineering male. I was certainly interested in the opportunity and thankful that the owner believed in our abilities to help him, but I wasn't initially expecting anything to happen. I'd come off a string of cases prior to this where people cried wolf and we didn't even get a puppy. I like that. I've never heard that before. Good one. Good one. I always try to go into investigations with an open mind and try not to let my biases get the best of me. I've gone into several locations across the United States, some even known as the most haunted locations in the country, and spent countless hours and days in them with not a single experience to write home about. Nonetheless, we had a job to do. We packed our equipment bags and headed to the restaurant. We got a tour of the entire building. When you walk through the front doors, you are immediately greeted by the main dining hall. To the right is the warm and inviting fireplace that draws you in and leads you to the opposite corner where there is a makeshift stage. Along the left wall stretches the bar with stools lined up for guests to sit. If you continue on around the corner, you come to a pathway with doors at the end that leads to the kitchen and conjoined offices. Once the tour was finished, the staff, one by one, left for the night. We set up our equipment and shut off all the lights. The rest of what I'm about to tell you will be almost too hard to believe. However, it is all true, and to date, one of the most mind-blowing investigation experiences of my entire life. We were locked in by management, and the restaurant was in a pretty secluded part of the city, so we didn't have a lot of interference with traffic or bystanders. We started our investigation in the dining portion of the building, with cameras aimed at the bar and pathway to the kitchen, as well as toward the front of the building at the fireplace across from the stage. The fireplace was said to be one of the hotspots of paranormal activity by the owner and his staff. It was a few hours into our investigation, and in the semi-darkness we began to notice activity. As we sat beckoning the spirits to come forth, the decor of cowboy hats and lassos on the wall above the bar seemed to move, making me uneasy. During this time, I could also see a short shadow figure pacing back and forth behind the bar. It ducked down every now and then, as if it was playing a game of hide-and-seek. The air felt stale as I watched the movement with wide eyes. During the time the activity was picking up, we were recording audio from two different ends of the same room. Occasionally, we do this to document discrepancies between any evidence we capture. Our tech manager decided to get up and change out the batteries of one of our motion sensor cameras that we had sitting on the bar. It was also a good opportunity for him to confront the shadow figure that seemed to so amuse at keeping us on edge. He crept up to the bar and stood still as to not disturb any activity we were already getting, when all of a sudden we heard a thunderously loud clang that reverberated, reverberated, I hate that word, I can't say it, why'd you write that word? Throughout the entire restaurant. 
I sat still, hardly daring to breathe, as before our very eyes, the bar stool lifted off the floor about a foot and a half and with a violent force crashed to the ground. Our team member was in a state of shock as this occurred only inches from him. We briefly shone our flashlights on the bar stool and discovered that the seat of the chair was about three feet from its original location and the back was facing the complete opposite direction, as if something with superhuman strength had picked it up from the backrest and slammed it down in a fit of rage. A few moments later, a short shadow figure was spotted scampering along the backlit wall on the pathway to the kitchen. The most peculiar thing about this figure was that it moved in a fashion that defies logic. It was as if it floated to the back of the establishment at record speed. It never took a single step. Shit. Later that evening, we investigated the back offices. We were sitting in a circle conducting an EVP session when all of a sudden it sounded like someone slapped the inside of the window with two hands and an army of force. Upon closer inspection, we could see the frosted outline of two handprints on the inside of the glass facing us. Immediately, we stopped our session and got up to inspect the premises. There was no one in sight. We even went out the emergency exit to cover all of our bases, but lo and behold, the city sat desolate and silent in the night. We were completely alone, and yet, we were not. A short while later, we heard what sounded like a full-blown dinner party happening just through the doors leading to the restaurant. We sat with darting eyes, unable to speak, as we listened to what sounded like women gossiping with one another, men laughing over their cigars, and toasts being made in celebration. In addition to their soft, haunting voices, when closing one's eyes tightly, one could almost hear the faint tunes of the Wild West. We could hear plates and cutlery clanking and heels walking elegantly across the floor. It was so very loud. It sounded as if the bar was open for business and we were the only ones who didn't get the memo. After a few minutes of listening to the chaos happening in the restaurant, we had to know what was going on out there. Surely people must have snuck in. Upon rushing out from the office, through the kitchen doors, and into the restaurant with our flashlights clutched in our hands, we discovered that there wasn't a crowd, nor was there any other person there besides us. The restaurant doors were still tightly locked, and the silence was so thick you could have cut it with a knife. It was one of the spookiest experiences I have had since becoming an investigator. It was as if we were being watched by an army of people we couldn't even see. I grabbed both of the recorders that we had left running at both ends of the restaurant and played them back in the hopes that we captured the lively dinner party that had just happened moments before. Not only was the audio of the dinner party captured, but both recorders revealed different audio during the same timestamp despite being left in the same room. The recorder left closest to the bar was void of any disembodied voices, and the other, left by the fireplace, contained two menacing-sounding males that mocked one of our investigators when she asked if the spirits knew the bar owner's name. One of the entities also snickered and muttered sarcastically, Sure he is, when our investigator mentioned that this man was the owner of the building. Both voices were gravelly and wicked, leaving my soul almost feeling blackened and tarnished by something I could not fight back even if I wanted. The owner had reported several times that he believed the resident spirit was a female, but we captured something much darker on our recorders. Their distant voices were enough to chill your blood. To this day, this is one of the most active locations I have ever had the privilege to investigate, and while I am one of just a few paranormal investigators to date to have had this opportunity, I can honestly say that this restaurant is deserving of having its story told. The reason it stands out to me is because it appears to be such an ordinary, feel-good place. It has not been plastered all over the news outlets as being haunted, and paranormal reality television stars are not flooding through the doors. Crazy. Thank you for sharing that, Nicole. So Stockyard is closed now. They closed a couple years back. I'm not sure what the space is now, if it's anything at all. But I remember I was first contacted about the spot by some friends that had gone to an event there and had some strange experiences several years ago. This was 
before the podcast, before the book, the tours were still pretty new. It might have even been my first year. And these friends were not believers of the paranormal at all. Very, very religious people. Uh, So many of them experienced the feeling of some unseen entity pulling on hair and pant legs, darting past windows, that they started making jokes about the place being haunted, at which point the owner told them about some of his many experiences over the years. They contacted me sort of as a, you've got to check this place out and take your tours there sort of thing, but the restaurant closed down before we were able to get anything arranged. So, thank you so much to Josh, Amy, Renee, Bobby, Delena, Autumn, Melissa, Kim, Mandy, and Nicole for sending in your stories. I appreciate you guys. And now I have a scary story of a different kind that I want to tell you guys. Because October is not just spooky month. It is also Breast Cancer Awareness Month. This is not easy for me to talk about. It's very personal, but I think it's important, so I'm going to do it. All right. So, sometime last year, I'm not really sure when, um, I don't remember, but I started experiencing random, unexplained pain in my right breast, and like any responsible adult, I ignored it, or tried to. Uh, But it was always there in the back of my mind, just kind of one more thing to stress out about. We, and by we I mean all of us, but I think especially women, we take on so much that we always put ourselves on the back burner. We don't have time to be sick. We don't have time to worry about us. We've got kids and work and bills and spouses and friends and this and that. And there's just no space left for us. Anyway, uh, this pain had been going on for so long that when I broke my arm last August, I was sure that they would find something in all of the x-rays and MRIs they were doing because I watch too much TV and that's how it always happens, right, by accident. So when nobody said anything, I tried to convince myself that I was in the clear and I went back to ignoring it because I now had the whole broken arm thing to deal with and I can only deal with so much at once. But... As the months went by and my arm began to very slowly heal, this pain that I was having did not subside. Meanwhile, I watched as two friends my age that I graduated with were diagnosed with breast cancer and had to have surgery, radiation, chemo, the whole nine yards. So I knew this was real and I was terrified, but not terrified enough to go to the doctor. Every now and then, I would work up the courage to call and make an appointment, but then I would lose the courage before I had the chance. This went on for months. Finally, one Sunday in early January, in the middle of kind of like a sudden panic attack about my secret health crisis, I went to my husband in tears and I told him that I needed him to make me call my doctor in the morning when they opened and make an appointment. And he did, so I did. I made an appointment for that week. Crying again, I told my doctor what was going on. She did a manual exam, and she said that she didn't feel anything that caused her concern, but she wanted to send me for a mammogram anyway since I was so freaked out. So I was was only mildly concerned when I went in for the mammogram. But... My concern grew pretty quickly when, after the mammogram was done, they just kind of left me sitting half-dressed in this little curtained-off partition for what felt like hours. Finally, the technician came back, and she told me that while my right breast, where I was having all the pain, was perfectly fine and normal, something had shown up on the left side, where I was having no pain or symptoms at all. They wanted to do the mammogram again on the left to see if maybe it was some sort of anomaly. And so we did it again, and again, they left me just sitting there for a long time. The technician finally returned, and she told me that the spots were still there, so they needed to do an ultrasound. Now, as you guys have picked up on by now, I'm sure, I am a panicker. I panic, I panic, but I was alone 
I was in the company of strangers, and I couldn't have a full-on meltdown. So they did the ultrasound right then in the office. They didn't have to send me anywhere else or make a different appointment. And they confirmed that there were two small masses in the milk ducts on my left side, which I have not used those in damn near 20 years, okay? They were pretty sure that it wasn't cancer, but they had to do a biopsy to rule it out. So I scheduled the biopsy for a couple weeks out, which was the soonest appointment they had available. And I held it together until I got out to my car. And then I fucking lost it. I sat there and cried for a long time. I had a long drive home, so I couldn't, you know, start that travel until I had my shit together. It, it took a while. But I would imagine, given the nature of where I was, that I was not the first woman to sit in that parking lot and bawl my eyes out. My mom went with me to the biopsy, which it wasn't super painful, but it left me with some nasty bruises. I had like some technicolor boobs going on for a few weeks there. The biopsy was in the morning, and I was told that the results would probably take a couple of days. And if I remember correctly, I think this was a Friday, because I remember thinking like, fuck, I'm going to have to sit here this whole weekend on pins and needles. But the doctor called that evening to tell me that I did not have cancer. I was so relieved, but I was also still just in a state of shock that I was even in this situation at all. I had a consult with a surgeon to see if the masses needed to be removed. Um, My appointment with this surgeon was the first week of March. So news of the pandemic was making its way around the world. It was just starting to be alarming, kind of like, is this a thing? Is this the time it finally happens? We all know the fucked up answer to that now, but at this time, things were still very unsure to the degree that I do remember being really leery about going to a hospital for a surgical procedure. I wasn't sure if the benefit outweighed the risks. Um, Luckily, the surgeon decided that I didn't need surgery right away. We could wait things out, keep an eye on the situation, recheck in six months type of thing. So my health scare was over-ish, big sigh of relief for about a week until the Rona shut down the entire fucking world, which is still the state that we're living in. I just had my six-month checkup a few weeks ago. They did another ultrasound. The masses measured a bit smaller than they did at the beginning of the year. So I'm just down to routine maintenance, yearly mammograms. I was lucky. I am lucky. Just by chance, doctors found something that could have turned into a serious health problem while investigating a health concern that turned out to be nothing. So the pain on my right side, which still has not gone away, by the way, uh, there's no rhyme or reason behind it. They offered physical therapy, and I'm like, no, it's, it's not a pain I can't live with as long as I know that nothing is wrong. So we're just going to deal with that and move on. But the masses on my left side uh, that they found in this testing, those produced absolutely no outward symptoms. Many doctors recommend starting yearly mammograms at age 45. I was 39. Just like my friend Tiffany a nurse who was the absolute picture of health. She worked out regularly. She ate right. Um, She had recently, like in the few years before, lost a ton of weight. Not not a ton of weight. She wasn't just, she tightened up, you know. She, She got very, very fit in a way that makes the rest of us jealous. She found a lump during a routine self breast exam and she was diagnosed with cancer soon after. We're the same age. We graduated together. We've got kids the same age. I'm watching her go through this while secretly kind of hiding slash ignoring what's going on with me. Watching her fight has been heartbreaking and inspiring and scary. All of those things. Uh, She is now cancer-free. She looks sexy as hell with her little pixie cut, and I'm so proud of her and so inspired by her. She has become quite the advocate for breast cancer awareness. For me, it's all about the mammograms, girls. They are not as painful as they're made out to be. 
They're important, and you don't have to wait until you're 45 to start getting them. Call your doctor, ask them to refer you, make it a part of your normal healthcare routine, and for the love of all things holy, if you're having symptoms, random pains, unexplained lumps, anything out of the ordinary, do not be an asshole like me and ignore it. I cannot tell you how much regret I would have had if putting this situation off for as long as I did had caused it to become something that wasn't recoverable or survivable. I asked Tiffany if there was anything specific that she wanted me to say or mention, and she asked that I share this. It's hard to listen to, it's hard to absorb, but it's so important, you guys. One in eight women will develop breast cancer. Uh, Tiffany wrote this, but the same number is true for me. I personally know three women my age that have been diagnosed with breast cancer. In my case, same. I personally know three women my age, one is actually a couple years younger than me, that have been diagnosed with breast cancer in the past couple of years before the age of 40. So before the age that mammograms are recommended. Um, Self-checks are vital Mammograms are vital. Don't brush it off. If you find something, get it checked. If you do find yourself battling breast cancer, remember to look after your mental health as well as your physical health. Here locally, uh, the front room in Lansing sells quality post-surgical garments and regular undergarments that I hear are pretty fabulous. It's a breast thing in East Lansing is an organization that provides financial support for breast cancer patients. Lotus Life Wellness, uh, which is also local, provides counseling and holistic treatments. There's a ton of support out there, but sometimes finding the courage to acknowledge that you need that help is the hardest part. So to Tiffany and to all of you that have had to fight this awful fight, I am in awe of your strength and your courage, and I will always be rooting for you. To those of you who have not had to face the reality of breast cancer in any capacity yet, be it personally or through a friend or relative, go get your fucking mammograms anyway. Okay, that's enough of that. Back to a fun thing real quick, and then we're going to call this one a wrap. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned dead time stories which is punny, and you guys know that I love puns, but it's also the name of my next project. If you follow me on the Book of Faces, you already know this, but I am opening a little baby bookshop this week, actually. Uh, Dead Time Stories, True Crime, and Other Books opens in Lansing this Friday, October 16th. As the name suggests, it will be a specialty shop, Mostly true crime and paranormal books, Michigan cases, Michigan authors, lots of autograph titles, some vintage collections, good shit. Hours will be Fridays and Saturdays from 12 to 7 and Sundays from 12 to 5. The shop is part of Thrift Witches Dark Art Market and it's located on the lower level of Thrift Witches New Old Town location at 1219 Turner Street in Lansing. Masks are required, motherfuckers. They just are. Deal with it. Clean hands are required. It's a tiny little shop, so capacity is very limited. So please be patient if you have to wait your turn. But come in, get some books. I won't be there all the time because I still have a fucking day job, you guys. But I will be there quite a bit, and you can always come and get a signed copy of Haunted Lansing, even on days that I'm not there. Of course, I will be there all weekend, this weekend for opening weekend, so Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. All right, I think that's it. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at So Dead Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash so dead podcast. And be sure to visit so deadpodcast.com for all your so dead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to so deadpodcast at gmail.com. 
A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. If you need something to listen to between now and then, please be sure to check out the Serial Killer Chronicles if you haven't yet. My very first So Dead miniseries limited run. Um, so it's all it's over. It's eight episodes long. They're all about 20 to 30 minutes a piece. So it's a quick, easy listen, and it's really fun and fucked up and all of the things we like, right? Or you can join the Patreon party as a $5 and up patron to unlock all of the bonus episodes that you never knew existed. Stay safe, stay sane, and until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. Thank you.